the scripture lesson for today is Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. This is the story of Zacchaeus, as Dee indicated to us. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus because Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome Jesus. All who saw it began to grumble and said, Jesus has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is good news for all of us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, thou our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What do you regret? What do you think about that you wish you hadn't done or you wish you had done? It might be something really small, something that happened today or yesterday, something you said that you wish you hadn't or something you wish you'd done and you forgotten or didn't think it was that important and later on you really wish you'd done it. What do you regret? All of us, most of us maybe I should say, carry some regrets, some things we wish had gone differently or that we had handled differently. And the question we're wrestling with today is what to do with those regrets? How do we live them with them? What role do we give them in our lives? Thursday afternoon, I heard a really poignant story as I was driving. It was on All Things Considered on the radio. And it was a story of Bob Ebeling. Bob Ebeling is now 89 years old. And he was one of the engineers who worked to create the Challenger spacecraft. Ebeling was one of four engineers who had done some of the research, and they knew that there was a problem with the O-rings not sealing when it was too cold. And Ebeling and three others were very clear with the people above them that the Challenger should not launch the next day because it was too cold. And they couldn't trust that the E-rings would seal. If they didn't seal, the fluid could escape the um, fluid chambers and there could be an explosion. We all know what happened. It was too cold, the Challenger went up, there was an explosion, and seven astronauts were killed. Ebeling has now lived 30 years with the weight of having been one of those engineers who spoke up and wasn't heard. A month ago, when he was being interviewed for the 30th anniversary of the Challenger explosion, uh, he said just something very poignant. He's clearly a man of faith, and he said, um, when I, when I see God, I'm going to ask God why he chose me. And something like, I want to say to him, you picked a loser. 
Bob Ebeling has carried all these years a sense of himself as a loser, the person who saw the problem but wasn't able to have what he saw translate into action that would have saved lives. And it's been a very heavy weight for him. I hope most of us don't carry burdens quite that heavy, but we know what it is to regret. And it can be a small thing that we think of and then it passes on and it doesn't stay with us. The thing we wish we hadn't said or, you know, that little bit of gossip we indulged in and then later on we felt dirty, like we just, we didn't need to do that. It may be something large. It may be something that we really messed up. We may know that we did something wrong and thought we weren't going to get caught. And then it turned out that the not getting caught became part of the suffering because we kept carrying this terrible secret. Maybe we got married for status reasons and now we're years into a loveless marriage. Or maybe we had an affair and we see how that is damaging the trust in our marriage. Maybe we made decisions at work to cut corners and that corner cutting became dangerous for others. Maybe it's a way we treated someone in our family, in our community, and we look back and think, what in the heck were we fighting about? It just wasn't that important. But we carry regrets. One extreme in carrying regrets is to feel, as Bob Ebeling has, that it becomes this weight that weighs us down, that becomes this kind of impossible burden that steals our joy. People can react to regrets, though, in the opposite way. My friend Melissa Early is pastor of our United Methodist Church in Northbrook, and she also writes a blog. One of her entries was called The Gift of Regret, and I've got the information about it in your bulletin if you'd like to read the full entry. It came from a conversation she had with one of her parishioners, and the parishioner had said to her, you know, I have no regrets because everything I did made me who I am. So it, it's part of who I am now, so I don't regret anything. Melissa went away from that conversation thinking, wow, what would that be like? Because <laughs> she has a lot of regrets. Some of her regrets aren't exactly regrets. They're more wishes, wondering about the road not taken. What would have happened if? And we may have this in our mind. What would have happened if? I talked to that person I really liked, or I took this class instead of that class, or what if I took this job rather than that job, or what if I hadn't agreed to that transfer, or all these different steps along the way where life could have been very different with a different choice, not exactly a regret, but just a wondering. But then there are the regrets, ways that we treated people that created patterns that did terrible harm ways we functioned in our work life that turned us into someone we didn't want to be or harmed other people, ways we treated family members that may have started as just getting on each other's nerves and escalated and escalated and escalated into a family war, and now we don't know how to get back. We may have very deep regrets. But the amazing thing, as Melissa points out in her blog, is we feel that regret, but it doesn't have to end there. In the Christian faith, we can identify that we have sinned. And when we recognize a sin, we can confess. We can confess to God what we did, and we can confess what we know, how we know we harmed people. And we can ask God for forgiveness. 
and we can ask the people we harmed for forgiveness. We may or may not receive forgiveness from the people we harmed, but we know that if we confess with our hearts, we will be forgiven. What an amazing gift. So that in a certain way, a regret can be a gift, an opportunity for reflection, an opportunity to think about how we want to be in the world. And when we recognize things that are regrets, we can make decisions to be different in the future, to be more active in showing love, to hold back from the things that might hurt other people. And that's why Melissa can call her blog, that, that particular blog entry, The Gift of Regret, and she closes the blog saying, I have regrets. I don't regret the regrets. She's glad she regrets, not because she's glad for those places that she regrets, but because she's glad that it came to a place of regret, that she could acknowledge it, that she could confess, she could experience forgiveness, and she could move on. Because as Shane Stanford points out in his book Mosaic, we don't always move on. And then for some of us, our regrets become stumbling blocks to fullness of life. As I said in the case of Bob Ebeling, they can steal our joy. We can become so weighted down by this regret from our past that we just, all the joy is sucked out of us. Or it can steal our potential. Maybe we're so afraid of how we acted in the past that we're not going to take risks for the future because, you know, I took a risk in the past and see how that messed up. And then we don't receive the potential that Christ has for us. But it can also take our purpose, just our day-to-day -day purpose for living. If we're stuck in the past and feeling bad about the, the past, we may not have that sense of purpose, how God can use us now. And so these regrets can become stumbling blocks to who Jesus calls us to be and invites us to be in a life of Christian freedom. Which brings us to the story of Zacchaeus, an amazing story. It's one of those Sunday school stories that we tell and kids love about the little man. And some of us sing that song about Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I thought, you know, wee little man was he. You know, and it's all about Zacchaeus's height, this kind of cute story. But when we read the story as adults, we realize it's not cute. It's very serious but it's also very powerful. Luke tells us in chapter 18 that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now, we know that at the time that Jesus was living, the area of Israel was under Roman military occupation, and the Romans collected taxes from the occupied people, the Jews of the land. And so they would use some of the local Jews to collect the taxes. The people from the Jewish community who collaborated with the Romans in collecting the taxes really made the other Jews mad because they were collaborators. They were collaborating with the enemy. They were empowering the occupation. It was infuriating. So people hated tax collectors as collaborators, but there was even more. The Roman practice in many of the settings was to tell the tax collector a certain amount that needed to be collected, and it was up to the collector to receive those taxes for Rome. Some of the tax collectors, perhaps many of them, received more than they passed on to Rome. 
And so they could become very wealthy. It was kind of passing, you know, Rome gets five, I get two. Rome gets five, I get two. Just imagine that kind of thing. Now, we don't know that Zacchaeus did that, but it's possible he did, particularly because they're emphasizing that he was a tax collector and he was very rich. So Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector, the collaborator with Rome, hated by his people, probably, hears that Jesus is in town. Now, just before this passage, we hear about Jesus healing a blind man when Jesus was coming into Jericho. But after that healing, Jesus was planning on leaving. And so Luke tells us he was passing through Jericho. Jesus wasn't planning any teaching or healing. He was passing through Jericho. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He thought he was just passing through. But Zacchaeus heard he was coming, and Zacchaeus wanted to see him. And the crowd would not, just as Dee so beautifully illustrated with our Root for Jesus team, thank you team, the crowd wouldn't part for him. The crowd wouldn't let him see, and the Bible tells us that. And so he didn't know what to do except climb a tree. So he climbed the tree, and up in the tree, Jesus came by, called out to him, Zacchaeus, Jesus invited himself to his house, and off Zacchaeus came down, and off they went. Now, there's some interesting dynamics here. And again, just to be very honest, there are a lot of interpretations of this passage, so we don't know for sure. We don't know whether he stole. But I want to try out something on you and see if you think it might be true, because it strikes me as potentially true. Zacchaeus went up the tree, the people wouldn't let, you know, wouldn't pass for him to be able to see beyond their taller heads. But it's possible that once he was up the tree, he was treed. You know that term? You're up the tree and now you can't get back down. And it tells us that Jesus came along and called Zacchaeus by name. How did Jesus know his name? Now, some of you may say, well, of course Jesus knew his name. Jesus was God. Maybe. But it isn't often that Jesus knows the name of people that he's never met before. And here's a possibility. Zacchaeus is up the tree. The people around see Jesus up the tree, or Jesus, sorry, see Zacchaeus up the tree, and finally they have him. Their enemy is treed. So imagine Zacchaeus up the tree. What would the crowd be doing? The crowd's on the bound going, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus. They're taunting him. Feels possible. So imagine Jesus coming through Jericho, not planning on doing anything else in Jericho, and here is a crowd, and here is Zacchaeus up in the tree, and here is the crowd taunting him, making fun of him. We've got you now. What does Jesus do? Jesus calls Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house. This is an amazing thing because Zacchaeus was hated by the community. Now, we know Jesus' ministry was becoming more and more popular. He had fed people, he had healed people, and there were people following after him. He was very popular. And Jesus, who had all this social capital built up from the popularity, wasted it on Zacchaeus. Here he is with all these people impressed by Jesus, and then Jesus calls to a tax collector, goes to his house, and eats with him. 
And you see how upset the crowd was because as soon as they see Zacchaeus out of the tree and Jesus walking away with him, they grumble. This man, meaning Jesus, eats with sinners. They're appalled. They thought they liked this Jesus, but he goes off with Zacchaeus? Are you kidding? They're disgusted. And Zacchaeus stops and says, half of all that I have, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I will pay that person back four times. Zacchaeus has a conversion moment. He changes. Now what often happens with this passage is we're so impressed by Zacchaeus' conversion. We're so impressed that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus that he even climbed up a tree thinking he could hide behind the branches. We're so impressed that Zacchaeus is generous and gives back. And well, we should be. But when we focus only on Zacchaeus, we miss what this passage is telling us about Jesus. Jesus saw the person who was treed, who was hated, the tax collector, called him by name, and brought him back into community. And he did that by risking all that he had, all that social capital that had built up, by inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house. Boy, did it tick off the people around him. But Jesus knew it was right, because the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. Isn't it amazing to notice that Jesus called Zacchaeus and invited him into new life before Zacchaeus had converted. He'd made that step. He'd gone up in the tree. But he hadn't yet confessed. He hadn't let repented. And Jesus went to him. I don't know about you, but many of us, I know, have in our heads this image of a God who expects us to have it all together before we go to God. And so maybe we don't want to pray because we haven't quite figured out what to confess. Or maybe we're waiting until we're good enough and we hold back. But there are a lot of reasons why we can hold back from God. Where we think we've got we've to have it together before we're worthy of God. The Zacchaeus story is a treasure. Because Zacchaeus didn't have it all together before he went up that tree. And Jesus rescued him out of that tree before he had repented. Why did Zacchaeus repent? Because of the grace he'd already experienced in Jesus. Zacchaeus took the first step in the effort he took to see Jesus, but Jesus came and met him. We do not have to have it all together for Christ to come to us. We do not have to have it all together to be included as Jesus included Zacchaeus. Go back to the story of Bob Ebeling. I told you about the interview that had taken place about a month ago at the time of the 30th anniversary of the Challenger disaster. What I was hearing on Thursday was an update from that. Howard Burkus, the reporter who'd met with Ebeling a month ago, learned that Ebeling had received hundreds of cards from people all over the country who heard Ebeling's pain, his talking about how God had made a mistake in choosing him to be an engineer on that craft. And hundreds of people had written trying to help Ebeling forgive himself and to point out that he had done what was in his power as an engineer. Burkus went back to see Ebeling a couple weeks after that interview and found that Ebeling really appreciated the cards. They'd made a difference. 
but it wasn't settled yet. And so Burkas tracked down the person who was actually Eveling's boss at the time and tracked down others who were part of the team. The man who had been Eveling's boss at the time actually agreed with Eveling and had not realized how hard Eveling had taken it all this time. And he wrote a beautiful letter about how Ebeling had done all he could. I want to go back for a second. With some of the letters that people had written, there were engineers who told about how they'd read about Bob Ebeling in their engineering training. He was an example of the right way to be an engineer, to come forward with words of concern, even when it's not popular. So the man who had been Ebeling's boss at the time lifted up again his gratitude for Ebeling standing up, how he had done exactly the right thing. This man who was Ebeling's boss also knew that you don't, there are things that people might have assumed Ebeling should have done that you just don't do. You don't go over your boss's head. You're not going to call the space station and have them. That doesn't happen. There's a whole process and a chain of command. And what Ebeling did was exactly right. Burkus even found a man who was above his boss who had gone ahead with the space shuttle. And although that man wasn't willing to be interviewed, he wrote a note uh, to Ebeling to support him and to say how Ebeling had done everything right. Finally, Burkus went on and found someone from NASA, not who had been part of the shuttle launch 30 years ago, but a person now. And NASA issued an official statement talking about how grateful they are for Ebeling and all the engineers who spoke out for what was right and whose top concern was the safety of the astronauts and the success of the space campaign. With that, Ebeling was able to let down. And when Burkus visited him this last time and brought the NASA statement, the daughter, Kathy, talked about just seeing this difference in her father, seeing uh, how finely he had released and he could move on. Brothers and sisters, we have regrets. We have little things we did that still could have caused a lot of harm. We have big things we did that continue to be a weight in our minds. We are invited in the Christian tradition to see those regrets, to reflect upon them, to learn what we can from them, to treat them as a good lesson, to confess them, to ask forgiveness for any people involved, and to ask forgiveness from our God. And we can trust that God will forgive us. We don't need to carry around the weight of this thing we did in the past that we regret. We can go forward into new life. And we don't have to do that alone, which is an amazing gift. When Jesus freed Zacchaeus, not only did he call him by name at the beginning, but at the end he said, for he too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus' efforts had made him an outsider within his own community. Jesus brought him back into the community. He too is a son of Abraham. When we together are a community of confession and forgiveness, no one needs to be outside it. Anyone is part of the community, even us. May you know the freedom that comes from reflecting upon regret, confessing, receiving forgiveness, and moving forward with the joy and purpose and potential that Christ has for you. Amen.